aware you were going 40 miles an hour? This is a residential area. Sure, but I'm on my lawnmower. Wait, am I getting a ticket? No, I've just never seen anyone top nine miles an hour on one of those bad boys. And mow their entire lawn in 30 seconds? What got into you? Well, it did fuel up at Sunoco this morning. At Sunoco, we know how to fuel peak performance. We've been doing it for American racing for over 50 years. Fuel your best. This NASCAR season, every member of the Toyota Racing Team is doing their part to take the trophy home. Like 6th grader Melissa Kowalski, who changes true to true X on every true-false quiz she takes. All my teachers are Martin Truex Jr. fans now. Keep up the great work, Melissa. To accomplish greater things this year, everyone plays a part. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, Inc. For 75 years, NASCAR has been making history. Here they come to the stripe. Richard Petty's STP Oldsmobile. Waltrip dives to the inside. Petty almost put him off in the grass. And Richard Petty will win the Daytona 500. And Dale Earnhardt is going to win the Daytona 500 in his 20th try. Tonight, from the shores of Daytona Beach to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, we guide you through it all on NASCAR Live presents... 75 years at full speed, NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary. Jimmy Johnson wins at Homestead and scores history-making seventh championship. Chastain did a video game move, drove it and never lifted, put it against the safer barrier in turn three, never lifted all the way around the turn. 75 years at full speed, NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary is brought to you by Sunoco. Whether you're heading to the track or just hitting the road, fill up with Sunoco and fuel your best. And buy Toyota. For the latest Toyota racing information, visit toyotaracing.com. Now, here is your host, Kurt Becker. Welcome to the Motor Racing Network as we celebrate NASCAR's 75th anniversary. During the next hour, we will revisit and commemorate the most iconic moments of NASCAR's history. From the sport's early beginnings to Ross Chastain's hail melon move at Martinsville, we will do a deep dive on all the elements that have made the sport special throughout its 75-year duration. The National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, better known as NASCAR, was founded in 1948 at the Streamline Hotel in Daytona Beach, Florida. At the time, the Daytona Beach area was home to numerous automotive feats, including land speed records, as well as designated events where drivers would gather and compete on the sands of the beach. In the midst of such an environment and with a need for promotion and sanctioning, businessman and racing driver William Henry Getty France, known to most as Bill France Sr., created NASCAR, which has been the largest governing body for stock car racing ever since. The first NASCAR event, which was a modified division race, was held in February of 1948 on the beach course in Daytona. And while that was the first race to take place under NASCAR sanctioning, most historians would say that 1949 was the year that the racing world changed forever. The first strictly stock race sanctioned by NASCAR took place on June 19, 1949 at the now-defunct Charlotte Speedway, a dirt track in North Carolina, before a crowd of 13,000 spectators. In a controversial ending, Jim Roper, who drove a 1949 Lincoln, would be declared the winner after Glenn Dunaway originally took the checkered flag but was disqualified during post-race inspection for having illegal rear springs under his 19. 1947 Ford. 
After that event, the sport soon began to realize more milestones. In September of 1950, for example, NASCAR presented its first 500-mile race with the inaugural running of the Southern 500 in Darlington, South Carolina. Later that decade, in 1959, the first Daytona 500 took place at the two-and-a-half-mile Daytona International Speedway as more than 41,000 fans attended. Lee Petty would be declared the winner some 72 hours hours after the checkered flag, following a review of photographic evidence from a dramatic finish. Another historic moment came on December 1st, 1963 at Speedway Park in Jacksonville, Florida, when Wendell Scott became the first African-American to win a race in NASCAR's Premier Series. All of these events set the stage for a sustained period of growth in the 1970s when NASCAR experienced arguably its most important boom in popularity. Coming up, we look in the rearview mirror and relive what made that decade such a vital part of the sport's history. Ruoff Mortgage wants to welcome you home with their fast and stress-free mortgage process. Ruoff knows that when you're ready to move, you want to keep things moving. From the moment you start, Ruoff makes sure the process moves quickly, often twice as fast as other lenders, so you can close quickly and settle in sooner. Visit Ruoff.com to learn how you can qualify for the fastest loan of your life. That's Ruoff, R-U-O-F-F dot com. This is 75 Years at Full Speed, NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary. Now, back to Kurt Becker. The late 1960s and early 70s represent a time of momentum for NASCAR. One noteworthy example came in March of 1970 when Buddy Baker became the first driver to break 200 miles per hour on a closed course in a stock car. And it was also early in 1970 that the Motor Racing Network was formed, becoming an instrumental partner in helping bring NASCAR to a national audience. Well, I think of top moments in NASCAR over 75 years, I, I think a lot about the calls of the Daytona 500. Ken Squire calling the end of the race, Ned Jarrett calling the end of the race, like those calls from the 70s, 80s, and 90s probably stand out to me the most when I think of the history of NASCAR, winning the biggest race of the year and the announcers explaining it. Alan Bestwick, when he called uh, Dale Jr. winning the Daytona July 4th race, those are the, the historic moments of the sport, I think. In 1970, the Daytona 500 was broadcast on the network for the first time. And to this day, MRN remains the radio home for the great American race. They crash further down after they cross the start-finish line, but Austin Sendrick has won the Daytona 500. As the 1970s continued and leadership of the sanctioning body passed to Bill France Jr., two drivers elevated themselves to become the faces of NASCAR. As the sport started to grow, inspired to evolve. Richard Petty was the sport's first superhero, if you will. The famous car, the famous look uh, was so iconic. And so when you have a hero, you need to have a rival. And I think that's where David Pearson and the Wood Brothers came into play. And it was a strong rivalry. It was the first major rivalry, I think, in the uh, it, at least as the sport was expanding beyond its uh, beyond its short track roots that, that kind of caught everyone's attention. Richard Petty and David Pearson would routinely leave fans on the edge of their seats, combining for one-two finishes in 63 races and providing constant drama and intrigue. By the end of 1975, the two drivers had combined to win nine championships 
championships, Pearson with three and Petty with six. But another driver would soon start a run of dominance as Cale Yarborough won the NASCAR Cup Series championship three years in a row from 1976 through 1978. And then, as the calendar turned to 1979, came an event that many sports pundits still consider to be the most important race in NASCAR history. Cale makes the move. He's down very close to the grass. Down he tries to shut him off. Cale's in the grass. Cale loses it. He tries to pull it back. Down he side by side. They make contact. Both head toward the wall. They hit the wall in turn number three. We'll have a new leader. Caution is on the racetrack, and it will be a battle back to the start-finish line. Richard Petty takes the outside. He's got Darrell Waltrip close behind. Two car lanes back to A.J. Foyt. Richard Petty takes it into the trioval. He's got the advantage right now. Here they come to the stripe. Richard Petty's STP Oldsmobile. Waltrip dives to the inside. Petty almost put him off in the grass, and Richard Petty will win the Daytona 500. This Daytona 500 has had it all. Donnie Allison, Cale Yarborough crash in turn three on that final lap. The 1979 Daytona 500 was the first in NASCAR history to be broadcast live flag to flag on national television. Soon after the checkered flag, that national audience got even more than it likely expected. Cale and Donnie both out of the cars. Bobby Allison has brought his car down there. A furious discussion taking place just down below the banks of turn number three. And now it appears we may have a fist fight. We see drivers and helmets, safety officials trying to jump in there and separate them as tempers have really flared after this amazing incident on the final lap coming into turn number three. They battle on the ground at this time and we can't see as others come running in to surround and try to separate those drivers. When asking drivers what moments in history stand out to them, this one is in a category of its own. To me, when I think of the 75th anniversary of NASCAR, you always look back at the first Daytona 500 that was covered live on TV with the 79 Daytona 500 crash down the backstretch and the fight afterwards. What transpired that day led to a major growth in popularity as many became fans of the sport moving forward. It was quite literally the perfect storm. Uh, You know, it was the first flag-to-flag NASCAR race, and then everybody east of the Mississippi was unable to leave their houses because they were buried in snow. And I don't think there's any question that, that hundreds of thousands of people that had never experienced NASCAR before saw it that day. And and the fact that it turned into one of the most iconic finishes in the history of the sport, it, it just seemed like one fortuitous event after another. A huge audience by, by no choice of their own, a great race, one of the best in the history of the sport that we still talk about, and a lot of people became NASCAR fans that day. In NASCAR's 75-year history, few moments come close to matching what was witnessed and heard on February 18, 1979. A day in history which is often referenced simply as the fight. Coming up, we reflect on the 1980s and how a man named Dale Earnhardt took the sport by storm. NASCAR season is here, and everyone on the Toyota racing team is doing their part to perform at the highest level. From driver Ty Gibbs to amateur musician Russell Viper, who's working on the perfect pre-race pump-up track for the team. Start those Camrys yeah! To accomplish greater things this year, everyone plays a part. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, Inc. This is 75 Years at Full Speed, NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary. Now, back to Kurt Becker. 
the battle and the war. Here comes Earnhardt off turn number four. All the fans on their feet. Checkered flag and the Winston Cup championship to Dale Earnhardt. The 1980s. It was a time of flourishing for NASCAR. The biggest purses the sport had seen were awarded, and a number of drivers did their fair share to elevate the sport. The 80s and some of the superstars of NASCAR Cup Series racing in the 80s, yes, we had Dale Earnhardt. He was the intimidator. I I think you can actually take that because some of our biggest stars in the 80s had some of the greatest nicknames that came along with them. When you think Bill Elliott, you got Awesome Bill from Dawsonville. You got Handsome Harry Gant. You got Texas Terry Labonte. The list goes on and on. But when you throw guys like a Rusty Wallace, a Daryl Waltrip, who a lot of people call Daryl just the mouth, um, there's so many good things that took place because it wasn't a, a dominant decade, if you will, for just one person or two people. So I think the 80s, and the characters that came along with it, which certainly earned the nicknames that they had, that that was a big part of our sport. Terry Labonte wasn't a guy that was going to get out of the race car and shake his fist at you and find the closest microphone and, and basically sound off on the competition. Terry Labonte was quiet. He was unassuming. But when he put a helmet on and grabbed two fistfuls of steering wheel, Terry Labonte, he was a tiger. He would go after it, and he was going to do whatever it took to win races. So the 80s and the characters that came along with it weren't just characters. They were characters who won races and won championships. When it came to nicknames and new faces, one stood above the rest, the Intimidator. I think the other thing with Dale Earnhardt was that his style on the racetrack he was the common man he was the common fans man uh but he also wore the black cap and so he was fine until he roughed up my favorite driver then he became the guy with the black cap and i think that was the dynamic of dale earnhardt was we we heard so much when when he tragically passed in 2001 we heard so much uh, a rave commentary about him but there was a large segment of racers and a large segment of fandom that were not fans of his because they wrecked his favorite driver somewhere along the way. And that was the dynamic of Dale Earnhardt was that if he had not wrecked your favorite driver, he was your driver. He was the common man. He was your driver. But if he wrecked your driver, you always had an eye on that black number three, but you certainly were rooting against that car as well. Dale Earnhardt would win three championships, 38 races, and accumulate over nine and a half million dollars worth of winnings during the decade. The 1980s, in fact, saw many new personalities emerge and symbolized a time of change and growth. 89's over, buddy. She's history. She's mine, and I love it. All of the success the sport saw during this time set the table for a changing of the guard. The early 1990s, specifically the season-ending 1992 Hooters 500 at Atlanta, produced the end of an era for one driver and the beginning of an era for another. After winning seven championships, a man referred to as the King made the last of his record 1,184 NASCAR Cup Series starts. 39th, Richard Petty, last time in the STP Pontiac. And a young up-and-comer who would later be known as the Rainbow Warrior made his first. And 21st in his first Winston Cup start, Jeff Gordon driving for Hendrick Motorsports, the DuPont Paints Chevrolet. This was the era, the drivers of the 70s. You know, Richard Petty was the biggest star in the sport, and so this was a changing of the guard for Richard Petty. And the irony of it is, looking back at hindsight, and we look at how great Jeff Gordon was, uh, Jeff Gordon was some hotshot kid that we thought 
that day was going to be good. We weren't 100% sure. And, you know, he ran Thursday Night Thunder and he ran midget cars and he was the greatest thing coming up. But at that time, we weren't 100% sure. And while those storylines would later dominate the way history viewed this race, one of the all-time great championship battles transpired that afternoon. We were also very blessed that day because the average championship battle did not come down to the final race and three different guys within striking distance. There were a number of years where Dale Earnhardt or Terry Labonte or whoever would show up for the final race of the season wearing the champion's leather jacket that they had clinched a couple or even three weeks earlier uh, uh, on on the basis of having a ton of points piled up. There were many other days where we'd throw the green flag and somebody would hold up the banner on pit road, congratulations on the championship because all they had to do to start. To go to the final race of the season with three guys within easy striking distance of the championship was fairly unusual. And there was a lot of excitement about that that day. Even though Bill Elliott would go on to win the race, Alan Kolwicki claimed the 1992 championship in a race NASCAR historians would remember as a passing of the torch. You know, you think about Richard Petty's last race and being Jeff Gordon's first race. That was a pretty incredible moment. There have been so many throughout the course of the last 75 years. So it's been awesome to be a fan of the sport, to be part of the sport, and I'm excited for what's to come. Coming up, we relive the 90s and a rivalry we still talk about today. Well, listeners, in case you didn't get enough sports today, here's an ad break that'll tell you how to watch even more sports. YouTube is the new home of NFL Sunday Ticket. And if you sign up now, you'll get our lowest full season price of the year. Just go to youtube.com slash Spotify offer to get $100 off NFL Sunday Ticket. Watch your favorite teams out of market Sunday afternoon games exclusively on YouTube and YouTube TV. All right, enough about sports. Go get more sports. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends June 6. No refunds. This is 75 Years at Full Speed, NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary. Now, back to Kurt Becker. A changing of the guard was coming to NASCAR as the sport entered the last decade of the 20th century. The king, Richard Petty, was headed for retirement. And Jeff Gordon, a young upstart with roots in both California and Indiana, was beginning to make headlines. But while Gordon's stock was beginning to rise, he was not at the level of Dale Earnhardt just yet. Earnhardt had won his fourth and fifth NASCAR Cup Series championships in 1990 and 1991, respectively, and he entered 1993 among the championship favorites. Earnhardt, in fact, would be crowned for the sixth time as champion of the NASCAR Cup Series, while Gordon was recognized for his great promise by being named the NASCAR Rookie of the Year for 1993. As Gordon continued his rise toward the sport's top tier, Earnhardt remained at the pinnacle and won his seventh championship title during the 1994 season. Rick Mass follows the same line as Earnhardt, right to the bottom of the racetrack in turn one. Off two, they'll both drift out wide up against the retaining wall. Mass doesn't gain a bit this time. Some lap traffic ahead for the race leader, Hutch Strickland and John Andretti ahead as Mast has one more shot at Earnhardt. Here's Earnhardt, slips in four, Mast goes for the outside. Rick tries the outside, he can't get it, he draws to the inside at the strafe. Earnhardt wins by a car lane, holding off Rick Mast, and Dale Earnhardt will celebrate his record-tying seventh NASCAR Winston Cup championship with a victory here in Rockingham, North Carolina. This race team has done such a great job, Jim Goodrich. Richard Childers, everybody involved, my family, my mom and everybody supported us. Teresa, she's been so great for me. I got so many things, so many people to thank. 
It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. We won seven and down here at Rockingham. He said the other day you didn't want to talk about what a seventh championship would mean until you got it. You've got it now. What do you think? We can talk about it all day long now. <laughs> talk about it all the way to New Mexico. But a changing of the guard was emerging as the 1995 season began. Earnhardt and Gordon embarked upon a season-long points battle, with Gordon winning seven races while posting 17 top five finishes. Earnhardt responded with five trips to victory lane and 19 top ten finishes of his own. In the end, it came down to Atlanta, where Earnhardt won the race, but Gordon won the war. Coming back into turn number one, just as smoothly as he did on the very first lap here this afternoon. Earnhardt just kind of tiptoeing, riding along in the slipstream behind the Lake Speed Car. For the final time, he's off turn two. Black and silver colors of the Goodrent Chevrolet for Dale Earnhardt, climbing the banking of turn number three. He's down to the inside of Lake Speed. He'll follow Speed through Earnhardt on his way to a victory. So Dale Earnhardt will do what he had to do. He will win the Napa 500 while Jeff Gordon grabs the 1995 NASCAR Winston Cup Championship here at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. Wasn't a great day, but it's been a great year, and uh, you know this is uh, this is not the way we wanted to end it, but we did want to end it as a champion, and we did that. And yeah, I'm just elated. I, I, I tell you, I just I can't believe the magnitude of this sport, and uh, and and for me to be a Winston Cup champion is is more than I even know how to comprehend. Uh, it's it's unbelievable, and and I'm so excited that I don't even know what to do. I don't know what to say. Uh, and, and I'm trying not to say too much because I, I feel I feel the emotions kicking in here pretty quick. Gordon's impact on the sport was just beginning. He would lead all drivers with 10 wins during the 1996 season, for example, despite finishing second in the championship standings behind teammate Terry Labonte. Still, Gordon had yet to win the season-opening race at Daytona in his first four attempts. In his fifth try, the 1997 running of the Daytona 500, Gordon would lead 40 laps, and he would be in front when the caution flag flew at lap 197 for a multi-car accident. With the yellow waving for the final four circuits, Gordon would lead the field at reduced speed to the checkered flag, winning the Daytona 500 for the first time. Gordon sits at the bottom of the racetrack with Terry Labonte right behind. Ricky Craven, what a comeback to head to third, and as they come through this area of the racetrack now strewn with a little bit of metal still and tire tracks all over the place, Jeff Gordon begins to receive the ovation from the turn four grandstand as he slips off the corner and heads down the short straightaway and back to the checkered flag of the Daytona 500. Am I here? Is this is this happening? This is awesome. I tell you what, you know, we won the Brickyard in 94, and uh, I thought that no moment could ever, uh, you know, pass that one up. But, uh, you know, th- this one has. Uh, I think, you know, I know it's only my fifth season in Winston Cup, but each year I appreciate this race more and more every day. And uh, I tell you what, I'm so happy. This one was for Rick Hendrick. And, I mean, what a way to do it. One, two, three, Hendrick. And I couldn't have done it without those guys. That was teamwork out there, right, uh, you know, out there on, on the racetrack there at the end. Later that season, Gordon would win his second NASCAR Cup Series championship. Heading to Daytona in 1998, Dale Earnhardt had achieved a great deal in the NASCAR Cup Series. He had collected seven championships, had won at Talladega nearly a dozen times, and had won the 600 miler at Charlotte, the All-Star Race, and the Southern 500 three times each. Conspicuous by its absence from his mantle was the Harley J. Earl Trophy, awarded annually to the winner of the Daytona 500. Earnhardt had won 30 times at Daytona across various series, but the 500 had eluded his grasp. Would the 1999
1998 running of the Great American Race finally be his time? This is the race for the win of the Daytona 500. Fields in three. Earnhardt swings up to the top of Rick Mass, the lap car on the bottom of the racetrack. Dale Earnhardt puts on the block. Earnhardt slips off turn four. Back to the checkered flag. Earnhardt in front of Bobby Labonte. A lap car to the inside. Rusty Wallace make that Mayfield and Labonte banging for second to the stripe. Dale Earnhardt comes to the white flag and the caution flag. And Dale Earnhardt is going to win the Daytona 500 in his 20th try. It'll be Earnhardt coming to the stripe, finally eluding the one prize in NASCAR racing that has eluded him the most over his illustrious career. 20 years of hard work, I tell you. Thank the good Lord for a good day. I tell you, we got a lot of great race fans, a lot of people behind me that really all week long they say, this is your week, this is your week. Richard Childress has got one heck of a race team. I'm talking about everybody that works for Richard Childress from the 31 to 3 truck. Everybody, all this three team, everybody's worked so hard for this. I, I can't I can't believe we won it in the fashion we did. We raced them hard and we, you know, it's just a good race car. It says a lot for the team. It says a lot for all our sponsors. Everybody worked so hard at Chevrolet Monte Carlo. It is something else. Coming up. We remember the afternoon in Daytona that changed the sport forever. We also highlight one of NASCAR's great dynasties and introduce a new way to crown a champion. This is 75 Years at Full Speed, NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary. Now, back to Kurt Becker. NASCAR entered the new millennium with no bigger star in the sport than Dale Earnhardt. To that point, Earnhardt had won seven Cup Series championships and his Goodrich Chevrolet was a mainstay in victory lane. Entering the 2001 Daytona 500, Dale and son Dale Jr. were both viewed as contenders in the great American race. Little did anyone know that it would be the last time the two would race together as the NASCAR world changed that afternoon on the final lap. Michael Waltrip showing the muscle. Everything stacks up from third on back. Dale Earnhardt gets turned sideways. He'll take Schrader. Earnhardt and Schrader are in the wall. Waltrip leads off four. Coming down to the finish, though, it is Michael Waltrip trying to hold off Dale Earnhardt Jr. in 463 tries. Finally, Michael Waltrip is going to win a NASCAR Winston Cup race, winning the Daytona 500, the biggest of them all. Sitting directly in front of me, the Ken Schrader car and the Dale Earnhardt car. Earnhardt was on the low side of the racetrack. Someone turned his car. He went shooting up the banking directly into the route that Kenny Schrader was occupying. Schrader now very quickly calling over for the medical crews to come to attend and check on Dale Earnhardt. So Schrader climbing from his car very quickly ran to the number three, peers into the car and calls to the medical crews who are quickly coming to the scene. They have transported Dale Earnhardt Sr. to Halifax Hospital. No word on his condition. We did talk to some of the folks from Daytona International Speedway and Dale Earnhardt Sr. has been transported to the Halifax Hospital but no word on his condition one way or the other. Following the conclusion of the race, Earnhardt was transported by ambulance to the nearby Halifax Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead at 5.16 p.m. Eastern Time. Later that evening, NASCAR President Mike Helton informed the nation. Upon hearing the news, Dave Moody recalls the realization that every life around the sport of NASCAR had been changed instantly. Him dying on the day he did, in the event he did, in the manner that he did, it was just so surreal. It was like Michael 
Jordan going in for a layup and taking a hard foul and landing on his head and dying at center court of the of game seven of the NBA Finals, or you know Babe Ruth getting hit by a pitch and 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 dying at home plate of Yankee Stadium. It was it was the kind of thing that in the most bizarre nightmare you ever had, you couldn't imagine it happening, and yet. We, you know, we all just kind of stood there over the next half hour, 45 minutes, hour, not believing what was happening in front of us. And slowly but surely, you know, the knowledge began creeping in and, and people began to talk as people do. And it became clear what we were doing and what we were dealing with. And it, it hit everybody like the proverbial ton of bricks. We knew that our sport and our game and our lives had changed pretty instantly. Following the tragedy and sudden loss of his father, Dale Earnhardt Jr. continued to race that season in his father's honor. When the NASCAR Cup Series returned to Daytona that summer, many wondered how Dale Jr. would handle the gravity of returning to the site of his father's death after only a few short months. What happened that July evening in Daytona is a moment that sport will never forget. Final time to the back straightaway. Dale Earnhardt Jr., Michael Waltrip rolls reverse from the way they ran down the back straightaway on the final lap in February. They go nose to tail. Sadler and Labonte side by side for third. It's Earnhardt into turn three. Earnhardt is your leader. Michael Waltrip is second and the battle is side by side for third. But here comes Dale Earnhardt Jr. He'll lead off turn four. What a headline this is going to make. Dale Earnhardt Jr. comes back to the Daytona International Speedway leading the pack, coming to the line. He will win the Pepsi 400. What does this win mean to you? This win is probably, this win is definitely the biggest of my career. I love coming to Daytona. I always came here as a little kid and just walked into place with my jaw dragging the ground. And uh, to win here, uh, especially under the circumstances, it really means a lot. It's really almost overwhelming. I don't really know how I'm going to top it. Change of another nature would come to NASCAR following the 2003 season in which Matt Kenseth was crowned Cup Series champion. During that campaign, Kenseth was the beacon of consistency, leading the point standings through the final 32 weeks of the season. The only issue, according to some, was the fact Kenseth won only once all year and went winless for the final 33 races, which called into question the point system by which NASCAR crowned its champion. Enter the chase. Starting in 2004, a redesigned format specified that after the first 26 races of the season, all drivers in the top 10 in points and any others within 400 points of the leader would earn a berth in what would be known as the chase for the championship. Our Alex Hayden says it was a necessary change for NASCAR. We had the dreaded phrase, we had a good points day. That was the phrase that everybody was saying, even if you finished seventh and didn't lead a lap. I had a good points day. Well, having a good points day is nice, but the idea is to win in competition. Go win. And that, I think, is the biggest thing about this. Let's figure out a way to get guys to, to avoid going out and just riding to have a good points day, to have the consistency. Make them go out there and try to win races. And, and I think that was one of the big things about it. Some race fans loved it, some hated it, but the fact of the matter was, it created an awful lot of excitement. Kurt Busch and Tony Stewart would be the first two champions of NASCAR's newly formed playoff format. But one driver in particular would soon capitalize on the new system for one of the most dominant runs in NASCAR Cup Series history. So far, so good for Biffle. Jimmy Johnson will win the title, but Greg Biffle will win the Ford 400. 
100. Greg Biffle makes it three in a row at Homestead Miami Speedway and does the sweep for Ford on Ford Championship weekend. He wins the Ford 400. Jimmy Johnson is going to be the 2006 NASCAR Nextel Cup Series champion. Uh, there's nothing like that sound. I've worked on uh, this team as well. We've worked for the last five years to put this team in this position. Rick Hendrick has given us all the tools that we needed, and Hendrick Motorsports um, has worked their butts off to give us this opportunity. To thank all of them, uh, Chevrolet, um, I just, the feeling is overwhelming right now. Uh, we, we've all worked so hard and long for this, to, to have it be here. It's my first championship in quite some time. Um, and then to be able to win at this level is uh, just the ultimate thing. Hendrick Motorsports, Jimmy Johnson would win the next five Cup Series championships, forever etching his name into NASCAR history. Coming up, one of the greatest dynasties in NASCAR history has its final act as a new playoff format is introduced. This is 75 Years at Full Speed, NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary. Now, back to Kurt Becker. When a dynasty emerges in sports, as it did in NASCAR with Jimmy Johnson's five straight championships from 2006 through 2010, the question often arises as to who will end such a dynasty. The answer to that question, at least in this case, came in 2011. The chase for the cup that year ended up being a battle between Carl Edwards and Tony Stewart. Edwards, who was looking for his first championship, had been among the favorites all year long thanks to his consistency. But Stewart was considered a surprise contender and during the final 10 races of the campaign. He had yet to win a race that season and had even said himself that he did not deserve to be in the playoffs. After those comments, it seemed as if Stewart's team had flipped a switch, winning back-to-back -back races at Chicagoland Speedway and New Hampshire, proving that he would be a factor for the championship. Edwards remained consistent and kept the points lead, but Stewart would win two more times to close the gap to just three points heading into the season finale at Homestead. It essentially meant that the race would be winner-take-all, MRN Steve Post puts it best when he says the battle was like a heavyweight title fight. This was a heavyweight title fight when both guys' teams were on their A-games. It was unreal, blow for blow, because so much is made about Tony Stewart winning the five races, and five of ten is a spectacular winning effort. Well, he had to do that because Carl Edwards was equally as good just wasn't getting those victories. And the, the 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 championship battle, the nine races leading up to it were just, who's going to land body blows? Who's going to land? Who's going to get someone on the ropes? Who's going to do this? That season finale lived up to the hype as well. Stewart fell behind early, but drove through the field and found himself in the lead right in front of Edwards as the race and the season drew to conclusion. One of the greatest championship drives in NASCAR history. Less than a mile. Tony Stewart at the entrance of turn number three, putting a punctuation mark on the dramatic chase performance in 2011. Tony Stewart is off turn four. And not won a race throughout the season until the chase began, and now he's won five, and he's won the Ford 400, and he's won the NASCAR Sprint Cup Series championship. Tony Stewart comes across the line victorious tonight in South Florida. Carl Edwards will finish in second. After the way those first 100 and nine laps went today uh, 
you couldn't be more proud. <laughs> it's, a, you know, we we got had a, had the problem early and uh, had the hole in the nose, and everybody in this office depot, uh, Mobile One Chevy team did a great job of getting it back going, and then we had the contact with Rudiman, and we had to come back in and fix it again, and. I told him, I said, man, it's really going to make these guys mad when we come back twice and still kick their butt. So, uh, you know, it was just optimism and trying to keep the guys pumped up, but then to come out here and actually do this, it's, uh, man, is it awesome. It- In fact, Stewart and Edwards finished with the same number of points. But Stewart was championed by virtue of a tiebreaker, namely the fact he had won more races than Edwards on the season. And NASCAR's next big change just might have been inspired by that thrilling battle. Before the start of the 2014 campaign, NASCAR announced the implementation of a new playoff format. The playoff field would be limited to 16 drivers, and the playoffs would be comprised of four rounds. After each of the first three rounds, the lowest four drivers in the point standings would be eliminated from contention, ultimately leaving four drivers to compete for the championship in the season finale. The driver finishing best of those four in the championship race would win the title. When the announcement was made, there were skeptics who questioned the new format, but many of them were eventually persuaded that the change was for the better. The first two years of the new format, the championship four was absent Jimmy Johnson, who had won those five consecutive championships and then added a sixth in 2013. Many were wondering if the challenge of the new format would prevent Johnson from tying the record of seven championships held jointly by Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt. Johnson got his shot, though, in 2016. He advanced to the championship four along with Edwards, Joey Logano, and defending series champion Kyle Busch. For much of the night, it looked like it would finally be Edwards' moment. But an incident on a late restart between Edwards and Logano left the door open for Johnson. Green flag is in the air. Joey Logano drives Carl Edwards to the inside of the track and into the wall. The caution flag is out. Logano trying to make a three-wide move to the inside of the track. He hit Carl Edwards and shoved him into the wall. Johnson waltzed through that door and made history. For the final time here in Homestead, it's Jimmy Johnson with the lead and a walk-off for the ages as he hits the main straightaway. They've been fighting adversity all weekend long. They've come through every one of the problems, and they come home victorious. Jimmy Johnson wins at Homestead and scores on history-making seventh championship, tying the late Dale Earnhardt and Richard Petty. It, it means the world to me to tie Earnhardt and Petty. These guys are uh, legends of our sport, grew our sport, and made it what it is today. For guys like myself to come along and compete, I am so thankful for their legacy, for their families, their dedication to the sport, and the opportunities it's provided me and my family. And to join those guys, man, I, I just hope I can, I can carry the banner, carry the torch as they have. Um, this is just absolutely incredible. With that win, Johnson secured his place in the debate for the greatest of all time. That group of seven-time champions is something that the current crop of drivers and the media alike agree is special. I think there's a, a, a big part of that, especially the seventh championship, in the fact that for years and years, and I still have never been able to understand why some fans had always said this, but they, there was a demographic of race fans that said, it's not Jimmy Johnson. He's not that good of a driver. It's Chad Knauss and Hendrick Motorsports. It's the team that are winning these championships. I never understood that line of thinking. And we heard it all the time. But when Jimmy went out 
and just said, I'm, I'm not going to lose this seventh championship and went and won the thing with the driving that he did, uh, especially late on. I think it, it changed a lot of those folks' way of looking at Jimmy Johnson's like, huh? This guy is a really good race car driver. That was an historic night for the sport. But Johnson and others could never predict the challenge that the sport and the world would face just a few years later. Coming up, we revisit the unprecedented 2020 season, the challenges presented by the COVID-19 pandemic, and NASCAR's triumphant return to the track. This is 75 Years at Full Speed, NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary. Now, back to Kurt Becker. NASCAR entered an eighth decade of existence in 2020 with an abundance of optimism. Denny Hamlin began the year by winning his third Daytona 500, and the races that followed were well-attended and competitive. But heading into what would be the fifth race of the season, the sport and the world came to a stop. A global pandemic caused by COVID-19 had gotten to the point that most everyone around the world was encouraged to stay home for their safety and for the safety of others. As haulers entered the garage for a triple-header weekend at the Atlanta Motor Speedway, NASCAR made the decision to cancel events for the time being and send the teams home, not knowing when they would be able to return to the track. MRN's Mike Bagley was in Atlanta ahead of that race weekend and remembers an eerie feeling the evening prior to the announcement. I had gone to Atlanta for the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series event. That was a triple header that weekend. I got there Thursday night, and before I went to bed, I'll never forget, in an NBA game, they stopped everything. Somebody had tested positive for the coronavirus, and they canceled the game immediately. And I looked at that for a moment, and I'm like, huh, well, that's interesting. And then I thought for a moment, I'm like, uh-oh, we could be next. Jump ahead to the next day. I drove to the Atlanta Motor Speedway, 5 o'clock in the morning. I did my daily show on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio, and in the course of that show, I did it from the media center. There are a lot of NASCAR folks coming in and out of there, and I could tell by body language and looks on faces that something was brewing. Racetracks would remain quiet for the next two months. During that time, the sport rallied as best it could and produced features such as all-star iRacing events for fans to enjoy. But still missing was the sound of the race cars and the excitement that only true on-track action can present. That May, after much discussion and planning, NASCAR would join the UFC as the first major American sports leagues to return to action. The first race would be the Real Heroes 400 at Darlington Raceway. But the race would take place with no fans in the stands. That first race weekend is something that the MRN broadcast crew will never forget. The comeback from COVID was probably one of the most bizarre chapters in the history of our sport. It was when we went back to Darlington for that first race in front of no fans. And we went back again and again and again because people forget it rained all week long and um, and it was just brutal to even get that race underway. But, you know, NASCAR, they formulated a plan when nobody else seemed willing to do so. They stepped up when nobody else seemed willing to do so. And they said, we're going to find a way to get our game back on the field. And it was amazing for those first few races. We were all there. 
every major league professional sport in the country had big wigs at the NASCAR race saying, how are they doing this? How are they pulling it off? How are they keeping people safe? And how can we do it in our game? So NASCAR really was the leader of the pack. Because of the pandemic, the stands still featured limited capacity at many races during 2021. But as the 2022 season began, the stands were full and the year started with a first for the sport, a race inside a football stadium. The brainchild of Ben Kennedy, NASCAR's senior vice president of racing development and strategy, NASCAR headed to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum and built a quarter-mile short track for the season-opening exhibition race, the Bushlight Clash. While racing in the heart of downtown Los Angeles seemed like a great idea to some, many still wondered how competitive the race would be on a temporary racing surface of such limited circumference. The event would end up being a smashing success, from the racing itself to the festive atmosphere which surrounded it. Alex Hayden was in the MRN broadcast booth that weekend and says that it was an event which provided an incredible experience. Time to get to it. Everybody has been anticipating this moment. The field off to down the back straightaway, getting ready for the start here at the Coliseum. And for the start, here is the Motor Racing Network's Alex Hayden. The 2022 NASCAR Cup Series is officially underway. Green flag is in the air at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. There were there were times throughout my 20 now 27 years with with Motor Racing Network that I can maybe count on one hand where I got goosebumps when something happened. But last year, the first time we did the clash in the Los Angeles Coliseum, we had our opening practice. Fans were not allowed in. So the only people that could see the race cars come onto the racetrack and turn laps in there were just the essential people, broadcasters, the the officials, and, and the team members themselves. That was it. It was spectacular, and it was really cool to see. And as a sports fan, to be in the most famous stadium on the planet with all the Olympic Games, all the Super Bowls, the World Series, all the things that have happened there, to be able to be in there with what I am associated with, what my passion is, in NASCAR racing, I felt like we elevated as a sport just a little bit more. That 2022 season started with that groundbreaking moment, but a moment near the end of the year would end up going down as the defining moment of the year. Throughout the 2022 season, Ross Chastain and Trackhouse Racing had impressed onlookers in their first year together. Chastain won two races early in the season, which helped propel him into a deep playoff run. Despite all of that success, in the closing laps of the season's penultimate race at Martinsville, he found himself below the cut line for the championship four. That was until he got to the backstretch on the final lap and unearthed a move that will forever be known as the Hail Melon. Off turn four, white flag is in the air. Christopher Bell takes it. He sets sail for turns one and two, trying to walk off. For the second time in the last four weeks, Christopher Bell has been in a do-or-die situation. He is still alive. Final time in the three. Christopher Bell from the line. He had to win, and he's going to win. Here comes Christopher Bell. He'll score the win. Further back, Ross Chastain. Chastain did a video game move, drove it, and never lifted. Put it against the safer barrier in turn three. Never lifted all the way around the 
just fully committed. And I double checked off a of two when we took the white flag. And Bill Surgeon and Brandon McReynolds both were yelling, yes, we need two spots. And I, uh, I grabbed fifth gear. We were used third and fourth here. And I grabbed high gear and got against the wall early and just took my hands off the wheel and, and knew my belts were tight and trusted the process and trusted this next-gen car, and I was willing to do it. And, you know, if it didn't work, it didn't work, but I wasn't going to go down without at least trying. I'm in shock just because I didn't think something like that was – I didn't think something like that was was, was possible. I, I don't – I'm at a loss for words for the type of competitive psychology it takes to make a decision like that, but I'm in awe of it. Now the sport is about to embark on its landmark 75th season, the Diamond Anniversary. With the 65th running of the Daytona 500 kicking things off this Sunday, with the sport set to return to North Wilkesboro Speedway for the first time in nearly 30 years this spring, and with its first street course scheduled for Chicago this summer. Who knows when the next iconic moment could happen. Tonight's show has been brought to you by Sunoco. Whether you're heading to the track or just hitting the road, fill up with Sunoco and fuel your best. And by Toyota. For the latest Toyota racing information, visit toyotaracing.com. Tonight's show was produced by Trey Downey, Pat Jaggers, and Julian Council. The executive producer for MRN is Ryan Horn. 75 years at full speed NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary is a production of the Motor Racing Network. Buying a house can feel like you're going 200 miles per hour in bumper-to-bumper traffic with a dirty windshield and the sun in your eyes. Ruoff Mortgage has the technology, expert staff, and resources to simplify the process while speeding up the time it takes to get clear to close. So while getting a loan can seem intimidating... Ruoff Mortgage will have you opening the door to your new home fast and stress-free. Visit Ruoff.com to learn more. That's Ruoff.com.